Ladies and gentlemen, as chairman of LSE, it gives me great pleasure to welcome David Cameron here today to take part in what has been a series of interventions by the leaders of the political parties in Britain in LSE. We're very, very honored to have him here, particularly as the subject which he will address, which is the economy, is in the forefront of everybody's minds today. I know that I don't have to introduce him to you. Um, his position prior to his current one as Secret Shadow Secretary of State for Education and Skills, his election in 2001, and the enormous impact that he has made politically since he took over as leader of the Conservative Party. So I'm just going to simply take him, ask him to take the floor and to address you. David. Thank you very much for that introduction, Peter, and thank you for coming today. Um, you talk about the impact uh, I've had. I'm not sure the impact has been felt by everyone. My daughter was asked the other day uh, what I did by the deputy editor of The Times, and she said, my daddy reads the newspapers for a living. Um, and not content with that, she went on to say, and sometimes when I'm watching cartoons on the telly, he switches over and watches himself instead. Uh, <laughs> But today, I want to talk about the clear choice that is emerging in British politics. It's about how we deal with the great economic problems that confront this generation, the recession and the record level of government debt here in the UK. Labour's response is to address the first problem, the recession, but to ignore the second, the level of debt. They argue that this recession is so exceptional that it is right to try and stimulate the economy with borrowed money we haven't got, adding another discretionary £20 billion to government borrowing and the level of debt. Labour argue that the level of debt is not a problem and it can be dealt with by unspecified people at some unspecified time in the future. The main thing, they say, is to find the money for short-term giveaways today to deal with the recession. By contrast, the conservative response to these twin problems of recession and record debt is to address both together, understanding the important connection between the two, a connection that I believe Labour has ignored. We argue that we simply cannot go on as we are, that when you're already borrowing so much, it is quite wrong to deliberately borrow even more. Now, of course, the so-called automatic stabilisers, spending which rises in a recession as benefits are paid to those out of work, and tax receipts that fall as companies make lower profits, of course those automatic stabilisers must be allowed to operate. But we argue that extra discretionary borrowing, over and above the effect of the automatic stabilisers, will not help with the recession. It may even make the recession longer and deeper. So instead, we believe that we need to act now to set our economy and our public finances on a sustainable path, because doing so will actually help to make the recession shorter and shallower. So this is a very big and profound choice between the two parties. And the reason I want to make this speech today is to clarify the nature of the choice. Because I think in the last few months, as the economic arguments have raged back and forth, the connection between the recession and the record debt has not always been clear. 
It's almost as if they've been put into two separate boxes. Indeed, the interviewer on the Today programme did exactly that. The two separate boxes marked long-term and short-term. The recession as today's short-term crisis, the record debt as tomorrow's long-term problem. What I want to demonstrate today is that this separation will make both problems worse, and it's this separation that is exactly what Labour is doing. I think everyone now accepts that the argument we've been making about fiscal responsibility, dealing with debt, getting our public finances on a sustainable path, I think everyone now accepts it's definitely right for our economy tomorrow. That is, right once the economy, once the recovery has started. But my argument this morning is that it's also right for today, that it's a vital element of ending the recession and getting the recovery started. So I want to explain why I believe that taking action to control public spending is an urgent priority right now. Why that is not about trumped-up short-term efficiency savings or thoughtless crisis cuts, but it's about long-term change. Long-term change that involves reducing the demands on the state by fixing our broken society, and long-term change that it means increasing the productivity of the state by reforming our public services. So let me start with the argument about the short-term and the recession. Surely it's right that exceptional times call for exceptional measures, that the long-term can just look after itself, and that all that matters is doing everything we can to fight the recession now. Well, yes, I do believe that exceptional times call for exceptional measures, but they've got to be the right exceptional measures, not the wrong ones. The right exceptional measures are those which would actually deal with the causes of the recession. Now, everyone knows the recession started with the credit crunch. The recession we have has at its core a severe contraction in credit. So we need exceptional policies to get that credit moving again. The bank recapitalization was intended to do that, which is why we called for it and why we supported it. But I think it's now clear that the bank recapitalization, while it may have, while it may have saved the banks from collapsing, it's actually failed to save the wider economy. Good businesses are still not able to get the credit they need to keep going. So we need, if you like, further exceptional policies, principally monetary policies, to get businesses the money they need to get through the recession. That's why we've proposed a new national loan guarantee scheme to get lending going. What we do not need is exceptional action that is wrong. And that's what we've seen from Labour in fiscal policy. Labour are using this crisis to suspend all reasonable fiscal principles. Their argument is that the exceptional crisis we face today excuses the most extreme, the most reckless action, and tomorrow, tomorrow can just take care of itself. That dealing with their recession comes before dealing with their record debt. This is the justification for the VAT cut and the massive tax rises that will be needed to compensate for it in years to come. But this is the kind of short-term economics that I believe helped to get us into this mess in the first place. Spending money we haven't got and adding to already record debt levels will not only leave an unfair burden on our children for the long term and on all of you when you leave London School of Economics, it will actually make things worse. It will hamper the recovery with higher taxes just as the economy should be getting going again and it will delay the recovery by undermining people's confidence in the future. 
When borrowing is already rising to dangerous and unsustainable levels, temporary short-term giveaways now, paid for by permanent tax rises and even higher borrowing later, is a big economic mistake because it misunderstands how people actually behave. When people make big economic decisions, like buying a house or a car or investing in a business, the kind of decisions that will collectively determine how long and how deep this recession is, when people make those decisions, they don't just act in the present, they look ahead to the future. Their expectations of the future really matter. Now, if the future looks bleak and uncertain, people are more likely to be more cautious, especially with their own money. If people know that they will be hit with massive tax rises in a couple of years, they're less inclined to spend more now. If businesses know that government borrowing is rising to unsustainable levels, they know that will destabilize our economy, and so they're going to be wary about playing a more active role in that economy. When you're making a decision about buying a house, employing extra staff in your business, investing in a business, you want to know your investment will pay off. You want to be confident about the future. Labour's spend now and forget the future response to this crisis is, I believe, the exactly the opposite to what is required. Instead of helping the economy out of this recession by giving people confidence that the government has a plan to put the economy back on a sustainable, stable and responsible path, Labour's short-term giveaways will actually undermine confidence and hope. Labour don't seem to understand that you cannot buy confidence. For these reasons, fiscal responsibility is the right economic strategy for the short term as well as for the long term. It's right for today as well as for tomorrow. Dealing with Labour's recession and dealing with Labour's record debt are not separate policies, one urgent, the other one to be put on the back burner. They are intimately connected priorities and they're both urgent priorities. Now, it's for these reasons, I believe, that the recent pre-budget report received such a negative response. It wasn't just that the cut in VAT was such a misguided way of trying to stimulate demand when prices in the shops are already falling. It wasn't just that the new top rate of tax and the new fondness for state economic intervention shows a sort of death of new labour and a return to the 1970s. It was because at the heart of the pre-budget report were deficit figures that were truly shocking. Labour were forced to admit the true scale of the crisis they'd caused in the public finances. And then instead of actually showing us how they planned to make it better, unbelievably, they told us how they planned to make it worse. It was at that moment, I believe, that we saw the staggering economic incompetence of this Labour government revealed. To have spent so much, to have borrowed so much, to have achieved so little, to have stored up so many problems for the future, and to have taken such a risk more discretionary borrowing when the public finances are already so out of control, and to have nothing to say, no apology, no contrition for the past, and to have such a useless idea for the present, no serious plan either for the recession or for the record debt, just the same old spin about a new strategic state and the same old short-term political games to try and wrong-foot your opponents. I think these Labour politicians have been found out, and just as before, they should be punished for a generation for their economic crimes. So I want us to be clear about our alternative. The world has changed. You only need to read the figures in that pre-budget report to realize just how much it's changed. Our country will have to borrow nearly 120 billion pounds next year. That's another 4,000 pounds for every family in the country. 
Our national debt is set to double to over one trillion pounds. Britain will be in the red until at least 2016. And that's an assumption made on an incredibly optimistic forecast. So let us tell the truth that Labour cannot admit. There's no money left. Labour have spent it. Labour have blown it. As before, they've made a monumental mess of the public finances, and once again, it will be a Conservative government that has to clear it up, reducing our borrowing, reducing our debt, and setting a framework for getting our public finances properly under control. And putting forward a credible plan for doing it, for ensuring that just as families across the country will have to learn again to live within their means after this decade of debt, so too the government will have to live within its, its means. Now, the first step is to set realistic targets for public spending. It's simple, if you think about it. Borrowing is now going beyond acceptable limits. Taxes are already too high, and the plans for even more taxes will act as a drag anchor on the recovery. They'll put people off from investing here and help to destroy jobs rather than create them. So the choice is clear, and I accept it is a tough one. We need to restrain the growth of public spending. But I think that if we're straight with people about the mess that's been made, people will understand the tough decisions necessary in order to clear it up. Now, in the pre-budget report, the Chancellor revised down his spending plans, but only from 2011 onwards. For 2010, all he's promising is £5 billion of unspecified efficiencies. Now, we have spent the past fortnight analysing those plans, and the consequences are now clear. To pay for Labour's spending would mean substantial tax rises over and above the ones that the Chancellor actually <coughs> told us about. As Robert Choate, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, said, it certainly does look as though, erring on one side or the other, it looks quite optimistic. I think that is something of an understatement. So if we're to avoid substantial tax rises in the future, tax rises that will hamper the recovery, we've got to slow the growth of government spending. So I can announce today that in order to keep spending at a responsible level, and to ensure the quickest possible end to the recession and the strongest possible recovery, we will not match Labour's new spending plans for 2010 and beyond. Only by taking this step can we ensure the government lives within its means, and only by ensuring that government lives within its means can we build the low-tax, low-debt economy that will be able to compete in the world and create the jobs and the wealth and the opportunity that everyone wants to see. This is how we can create the confidence in our economic future that is vital for a strong recovery. But setting tough targets for public spending is only the first step. The next step is showing how we'll meet those targets, and that requires a credible long-term plan. Now, a credible plan for controlling public spending has got to have three components. First, you've got to reduce the demands on the state by fixing our broken society. Second, increasing the productivity of the state by reforming public services. And third, cutting government waste. I want to start, as I would in government, with the long-term change. Because I understand that to achieve lasting change in government, you've got to reform, you've got to drive through radical reform absolutely from the first day in office. And it's radical social reform that will help us deliver long-term savings in public spending by reducing demands on the state. Now, I've said before, that the central mission of the next Conservative government will be to fix our broken society. That mission is not made irrelevant by the economic crisis. In my view, it's made more urgent. The social costs of family breakdown, 
welfare dependency, educational failure, crime, antisocial behaviour, drug and alcohol addiction. All these things in social terms are impossible to calculate, but the economic costs are clear and huge. These social failures rack up enormous bills for the taxpayer. Now, we know that Labour cannot fix our broken society. They've refused even to acknowledge that there is social breakdown in our country, and their policies at best deal with the symptoms of the problem and at worst help cause them in the first place. The truth is we're going to have to take some pretty tough decisions to reverse social breakdown, and Labour aren't prepared to take those decisions. They will never break the state's monopoly in school provision, and so they'll never truly tackle educational failure. They will never allow local voluntary organisations to take over welfare provision, so they'll never truly tackle welfare dependency. And they'll never admit the importance of marriage in giving children a strong and stable start in life, so they'll never tackle family breakdown. We are prepared to do all of those things. But as well as reducing demands on the state, we can and will increase the productivity of the state through proper public service reform. This will be vital to maintain and improve the services people receive during years which inevitably will be characterised by tight public sector budgets. We can no longer afford to pump money into unreformed public services. What the country needs is a clear and coherent plan for public service reform. And our plan will work by harnessing the power of the individual and the power of choice and of competition. It's what we mean when we talk about a new post-bureaucratic age. Where services are individually consumed, we will transfer power over those services to individual people, giving them a choice between competing providers. If you can have choice in that way, you should. Where services are collectively consumed, policing for instance, we will transfer power over those services to the lowest practical tier of government, opening up provision to social enterprises, private companies and community organisations. By liberating the supply side, unlocking the potential of both the private and voluntary sectors, and providing people with meaningful, accessible information about public services will give people real choice and thereby improve quality and productivity. Conservative reform will not mean endless reorganisations and technocratic tinkering. It will mean unleashing competition, making providers accountable for their actions, and paying people by results, devolving power to the people who pay for and use public services. That is how you ensure better services for less money helping improve people's quality of life at the same time as helping to strengthen our economy by keeping public spending down. And of course, in addition to these plans for the medium and the long term, we want to save money straight away by cutting out government waste and outdated programmes. I do think this government has created a public sector cult culture that is shockingly casual about public money and how it is spent. 20 billion wasted on an NHS computer that still isn't working properly, 2.3 billion spent refurbishing the offices of Ministry of Defence civil servants, nearly 2 billion of tax credits lost to fraud and error in the past year alone. Monopoly money, frankly, gets more respect. Even the Chief Secretary to the Treasury admits that the government has room, and I quote, to be cutting back further on waste, and the chips are now down, they can, and I quote, achieve higher levels of efficiency savings than originally planned. Now, of course, they say they're on an efficiency drive now, but a few months ago, they said that any potential savings were cuts. Now they say they can save over £30 billion worth. They cite the Gershon Review as evidence of their efficiency. But the truth is, the first round delivered more spin than savings. Even Sir Peter Gershon is concerned about the latest waste initiative, 
questioning whether it's got the priority, the pace, and the urgency needed. We can and must do better than this. I've asked every one of my shadow ministers to go through their budgets line by line to root out wasteful spending, to abolish programs that have served their purpose and are no longer necessary. We will call on the best private sector expertise to find ways to save taxpayers' money and improve service delivery. And crucially, we will use the freedom of information. Last year, we introduced a bill in Parliament to force the government to list on a public, easily searchable website every item of public spending over £25,000. This could lead to a real revolution. Be in no doubt, the next Conservative government will usher in this sort of transparency and accountability. Just imagine, there will be nowhere to hide the foreign trips or the office redecorations at the taxpayer's expense, no secret books to store those salary perks and expensive and unnecessary training that our cabinet ministers now seem to be going through on an almost daily basis. After a decade of reckless spending under Labour, we will get good housekeeping under the Conservatives. So reducing waste, reforming public services, reducing the demands on the state. This is a credible plan to control public spending, reduce debt, and put our public finances on a sustainable path. It's essential, as I've argued, not just for the long term, but for the short term too, because dealing with the recession and dealing with the record debt are two sides of the same coin. They are both massive economic problems and they've got to be addressed together. So fiscal responsibility has never been as desperately necessary as it is today. The Prime Minister's strategy of temporary giveaways with tax hikes down the line has grievous, urgent implications. This government is intoxicated with profligacy, and the bill for their binges adds up by the minute. The Chancellor's even hinted that in his next budget, there may be another fiscal stimulus throwing good money after bad. They haven't learned the lessons, and I haven't learned the international lessons either. In the 1990s, Japan tried to borrow its way out of debt, but was effectively buried by the strategy. They call it the lost decade, and I have a worry that in Britain we will have a lost generation. People leaving university with no hope of a good job, saddled with debt, paying during most of their working lives for Labour's dreadful mistakes today. Every week, the government is in power. It is mortgaging the future and doing it in a bigger and bigger way. Every week, the debt gets larger. Every week, the burdens on our children and on future generations is mounting. We urgently need a change of direction, not more of the same. And so today, I'm saying to the Prime Minister, put the choice in the hands of the people. Let him call an election so that Britain can decide what we want for our economy. Because there is this really profound choice. More reckless borrowing and spending or fiscal responsibility. More inefficiency and waste under Labour or good housekeeping under the Conservatives. An economy built on debt or a low-tax, low-debt economy that is built to last. This is too important a choice to be delayed. And I think we should let the people decide. Thank you very much for coming and listening this morning. Happy to take some questions. Who wants to kick off? Joey from Sky.
Thank you, Mr. Cameron. Joey Jones from Sky News. Can I ask you, this is a global argument as well as a domestic one, and can you situate what you're saying within that? Do you feel any unease, for example, when major world figures such as the French president, probably the incoming US president, the head of the IMF, do line up with Gordon Brown on this, arg on this argument and not with you? And could I also just ask you about David Ross? Clearly he has had close financial links with your party. He still has a role within Boris Johnson's administration. Do you now feel uncomfortable about that? Okay, let me take the, the first point first. Yes, there is a global argument taking place. And, and, and what I would say is this. If you look at what the head of the IMF or the European Central Bank or the OECD have said, they have said, yes, a fiscal stimulus is a good idea if you can afford it. Um, but the truth is in Britain, I don't believe we can afford it, and for those reasons, there's a danger of making the situation worse. And what's interesting is that Jean-Claude Trichet, the head of the European Central Bank, has said just this morning, um, effectively, that those countries borrowing more than 3% of GDP are in danger of making things worse, in danger of sapping confidence in the economy. Now, next year, uh, we are due to borrow almost 8% of GDP. And remember, that's the forecast on a pretty optimistic growth path. So I think when you look at the international evidence, there are two sides to the argument. But I'm very happy with the side that I'm on, because it seems to me the international forces are lining up to say, yes, of course, uh, give people tax reductions. And I believe in tax reductions, but only if you can afford it. And when you see the force of what the ECB has said, see the force of what the German finance minister has said, see the force of what the Japanese are, are saying about this, I think you see there's a very different argument to the one the Prime Minister is putting forward. Uh, David Ross. Um, uh, clearly, he has uh, taken action by um, uh, resigning from Carphone Warehouse. Uh, clearly, the issue is for the company and for him and also for the stock exchange if he broke those rules. And it's an issue for Boris Johnson. And I understand also the government to consider about what to do next because David Ross, uh, I think, does some work both for Boris Johnson and for um, Tessa Jal. But I think in the first instance, resigning from the company uh, is the right thing to do, and uh, it's a matter for the Stock Exchange what they decide and whether they take it further. George. Uh, George Jones, the Press Association. Uh, you put your argument today, but if you look at the latest opinion polls, it suggests that Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling are winning this argument. Are you frustrated that you don't appear to be getting this point across to the British public? No, no, not at all. I mean, I'm in, I'm in, I, mean no, I think this is a really important argument, and there is a very big difference between uh, what Gordon Brown is saying and what I'm saying. The polls come and go, and they say different things. Last weekend, there were two polls giving the Conservatives an 11 and a 15-point lead. Then there was one giving us a one-point lead, today four points. I mean, they move around all the time. In the end, what matters is, you know, what the people think. And I'm, I'm making an argument. You might find it surprising with the poll. Making an argument, look, this is too important to just sort of leave to an election in 2010. I mean, I know opposition leaders always call for an election, but I really believe that we are actually on the brink of making a fundamentally bad decision. And I think I want us to have the chance to stop that now. Because I think what is happening is that the Prime Minister has got over-carried away with the exuberance of his rhetoric 
about uh, what is happening. And he's torn up all the rule books. And I think it's right to tear up that rule book that's about monetary policy. It's right, as I've argued, to set up a new institution to get lending going again. But it's not right when you're already borrowing £100 billion a year to go out and borrow another £20 billion to deliver a short-term tax cut that is completely unconvincing and then to whack up people's taxes later in a way that will completely sap confidence in the recovery. This is a huge difference between him and me. And I would like the people to decide what they want. Do we want to borrow more now to build up debts for our children, to actually give us the public finances of Italy and to constrain the recovery that will come? Or do we want to start being more responsible now, recognizing that's the way to restore confidence in the economy? It's a very big difference, as we've argued in answer to Joey's question. Um, the international evidence, there's evidence on both sides. I'm quite convinced that our situation, where you know, next year we are planning to borrow more than when Dennis Healy went to the IMF in 1976. You know, in a situation where we're doubling our national debt to a trillion, where our national debt as a share of GDP is going to get back to the level it was when Dennis Healy went to the IMF, I think this government's making a really profound mistake, and I want to stop it. Gary. Thank you very much. Um, Gary Kevin, Channel 4 News. Um, you're ratcheting up the rhetoric pretty exuberantly as well, talking <laughs> about uh, punishing uh, labour for a, a generation because of their economic crimes. But until recently, you supported their tax and spending figures. Were you wrong? Were they wrong? Were you both wrong? No, I mean, I don't accept that. We fought the last election on a manifesto I'm often accused of uh, writing on a programme to reduce their spending plans and to use that money principally to reduce debt. Uh, our plans were more for debt reduction than tax reduction. So I don't accept uh, that we haven't had a pretty consistent approach of saying not only government debt has been too high, government borrowing has been too high, they didn't fix the roof while the sun was shining, they should have used some of the good years to put aside money, but also we've given some pretty trenchant warnings about the level of private sector debt too, uh, and made arguments about the failures of the regulatory system. So I don't, I don't really accept um, the contention. But anyway, the point is now, where do we, we're at a fork in the road. And the fork can lead in, in one of two directions. Either we go ahead with this borrowing binge, an additional 20 billion that I don't think we can afford to cut a tax that will not stimulate people because they know a further tax increase is coming down the line. We can go down that fork or we can take a different path and say, look, let's recognize how the world has changed. Let's recognize just how broke we are in Britain. And let's recognize that we've got to get the public finances back onto a sustainable footing if we're actually going to restore confidence. Vicky. Uh, Vicky Young, BBC News. Um, you say you'll stick to Labour spending plans from 2010 and assuming you don't get your way in a general election uh, before that. Are you confident that doing that will be enough to avoid tax rises under a potential Conservative government? Well, it's got to be the first step. I mean, what the government has set out is um, a, a significant tax rise in 2011 in terms of national insurance contributions and the higher rate of tax. Um, what I've said is our priority should be to um, try to get spending on a path where we can avoid those tax increases. But in avoiding those tax increases, we must put the interests of uh, low-income families um, first. And so the, the first priority is to try and stop those tax increases. They're going to hit the people earning 19, 20, 21,000. That's what they're, they're planning. Uh, and that is where the priority lies. But there's no doubt the public finances are in a shocking, awful state. I'm going to go back to that point I made in my speech. 
You know, people after the pre-budget report thought, well, why has this all gone down so badly? You know, was it the VAT? Was it the spin? Did they not? Actually, it went down badly because the borrowing figures were shocking, really shocking. You know, 118 billion in one year alone, uh, followed by 105 billion. I think that actually people, media included, woke up at that moment and thought, excuse me, we are in a dreadful situation with the public finances. And, and that is the reason. Uh, and that's on a pretty optimistic forecast about the recovery starting um, in the middle of next year. And it's difficult to find independent forecasters that back that up. So, of course, the first thing we have to do is get the public spending under control to try and avoid Labour's tax increases. We prioritise, prioritise the least well-off as we do that, but recognising we are living in a very difficult situation, and I don't want to make promises I can't keep. Fraser. Um, Um, but I'm not sure I can entirely agree with your figures. What I can see of what they've promised in 2010 is actually uh, they, they've talked about sticking to their existing plans, which is a 2.3% increase in real terms, um, uh, but they've also added in £5 billion of efficiency savings. Um, what we're saying is that we wouldn't stick to their plans for 2010, and obviously by not sticking to those, you're then working off a different baseline for 2011, 2012, and onwards. But if the general point you're making is... Um, you know, it is going to be very difficult that um, the trimming of public spending will still mean that borrowing is going to be very high. Yes, you know, this is, they're going to leave a truly dreadful situation that will take a long time to sort out. Um, but I think you've got to start as soon as you can, and I think um, 2010 is where we start. Even in 2009, we have actually made some proposals for reducing government spending, which we've said we'd use for a two-year freeze of the council tax. And we may be able to do more on that front. And we should keep looking at 2009 and say, well, is there more we can do to help people now um, by actually looking at uh, the wasteful spending the government's doing? But if the general point you're making is the situation is so bad that it'll take quite a long time to put it right, yes. A non-journalist had a question. That's, um... Here comes the microphone. Uh, I had a quick question about your conservative reform. Um, given the tying of hands of the current Labour administra administration, how much harder will that make, you, make bringing in your conservative reform? So say again, how, given the... Given the tying of hands of the current Labour government uh, for the next Prime Minister, how much harder does that make bringing in your conservative reform? It, it does make it more difficult. I mean, the, the, this government has tried to effectively announce... It's rather amusing listening to it. It's tried to announce a budget for 2011... Um, when we're still, you know, in, in 2008. But we don't have to stick to that. The whole point of coming off Labour's spending plans is to try and avoid the tax increases that are coming down the track. In terms of public sector reform, I really don't think they have done um, very much. They've talked a huge amount about it. But if you look at the ideas we're pursuing of breaking open the school monopoly and allowing new schools to come and set up in the state sector, if you look at what we're talking about with welfare reform, really opening it up to voluntary sector provision as has happened uh, in other countries, these are big and bold steps that haven't been contemplated 
um, by Gordon Brown in any serious way. And so, no, we're not tied into uh, their plans at all. These are different plans that would start from day one of a Conservative government. Um, you spoke about um, fixing a broken society, and I just wondered if your plans for a British Bill of Rights um, were part of that. You've plans for a? A British Bill of Rights? Yeah. You've committed to repealing the Human Rights Act and bringing in um, a British Bill of Rights. Um, what's not quite clear is which aspects of rights like fair trial, <coughs> privacy, freedom of expression, um, what is it about these okay. rights which are not, the way that they're put in the Human Rights Act, what is it about that, that makes them un-British? Okay. It's, it's not really connected with the mending of the broken society. It's, it's a different issue, but, but let me try and answer the question. I think there are three things we can realistically achieve by scrapping the Human Rights Act and putting in its place a, a British Bill of Rights and Responsibilities. I think the, the fundamental argument is this, that I think Labour made a mistake in the Human Rights Act just literally imports the ECHR into British law rather than, rather than trying to give ourselves our own Bill of Rights and Responsibilities. And the three things we can achieve are, are these. One, we can actually write into a British Bill of Rights some particularly British ways of protecting our rights. I would argue um, that trial by jury is, is, is a very British response to the fundamental freedom of a right to a fair trial. And yet the trial by jury is permanently being undermined by this government. And I'd like to write that into the British Bill of Rights. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that if you have your own Bill of Rights drafted in your own way, the Strasbourg Court gives you what's called the margin of appreciation when they look at any one particular issue. And this is the case with Germany, for instance, and I'd like it to be the case for us. The margin of appreciation can be meaningful. The third thing is, and this is where the margin of appreciation comes in, is I think there are some areas where by drafting your own Bill of Rights and Responsibilities, you can try and achieve some proportionality and also some common sense. I think one of the problems with the Human Rights Act is while it hasn't actually stopped the assault on jury trial, while it hasn't stopped, you know, 42-day detention, while it didn't stop um, my friend and colleague Damien Green getting arrested, um, it, it actually has led to some rather perverse judgments. For instance, the recent one that the Serious and Organised Crime Agency couldn't publish posters out of the most wanted criminals. Now, I think there is an opportunity, it's not foolproof or perfect, but there's an opportunity in your own British Bill of Rights and Responsibilities to try and write in some of that common sense and proportionality, and that is certainly the aim we hope to achieve. And I think it's the better alternative. I mean, the status quo ante of saying, well, uh, let's just um, not have the Human Rights Act, but allow... Um, uh, people to go to Strasbourg. I don't think that's right. I think it is worth a try of getting a British Bill of Rights and Responsibilities that can deliver those three things I've spoken about. Um, sir, standing up. I think this one and then one more and then I'm being beckoned away. Um, sir. Prior to the economic crisis, Britain looked to be, looked like it was about to start taking a leading role in both tackling global poverty uh, and the environmental crisis. Is there still room um, in the new Conservative Party to do this? Yes, absolutely. I think on, on both of those, I, I profoundly believe that this is not the moment to sort of give up on the environment. Often when the economies become the key issue, politicians will sort of say, right, we've got to forget about the quality of life and forget about the environment. I think actually if we, 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 one of the things we've learnt over the past few years is the dangers of energy insecurity, the dangers of a very unstable oil price. Now is the time to try and wean ourselves 
um, off hydrocarbons to the extent we're currently weaned onto them. And so we shouldn't give up on the environment. We should be pursuing decentralized energy. Uh, we should be uh, pursuing very tough and radical targets on, for instance, low carbon uh, from our cars. You know, this is not the moment to pack up on that. And also on, on global poverty. One of the big things we need is a restart of the Doha round. And I think just as we shouldn't tear up the bit of the rule book that's about fiscal responsibility, so we also mustn't tear up the bit of the rule book that is about genuine free and fair trade with the rest of the world. And we don't want to see the mistakes of the 1930s, a sort of protectionist approach, visited on today. So we should pursue uh, our poverty reduction by getting the Doha round restarted and making sure we have genuine free trade. Um, one more question from the middle here. Yeah, you talk about a, a lost generation of university students leaving with, uh, without a job and saddled with debt. Does that mean you're against abolishing uh, caps on fees? Um, uh, what it means is, I'm afraid fees, this is an unpopular thing to say in an audience like this, fees, top-up fees, tuition fees are going to stay under a Conservative government. I, I would love to make a promise, but you can see, I think, from my speech how precarious our financial situation is. And I profoundly want to see in our modern global economy, brilliant universities that are well-funded with good libraries, well-paid tutors even, dare I say, um, that, that people want to go to and get a really great degree from. And I think it's a myth to believe that we can have these things um, without students making a contribution to them. We fought the last election on that policy. I think it was a mistake. Uh, and I think I would rather look you straight in the eye and say, I'm sorry, the fees and the top-up fees are going to stay. You'll get a better university education as a result. Um, I hope we don't see this lost generation. What I'm worried about is when you come out of university, you're not going to just have debts yourself, but you're going to be paying off the nation's debts. You know, if we go on borrowing 78 billion this year, 118 billion next year, 105 billion the year after, you will be not just paying off your university debts, you will be paying off Italian levels of debt in the British economy. And I want you to help me to avoid that now. Thank you very much. Well, we live in challenging times, and we've had this morning the opportunity to listen to a very clear enunciation of policies to deal with these challenging times, and clearly battle lines have been drawn in a way which is unambiguous, as it should be in a time of political challenge of this kind. We're very grateful in LSE to David Cameron for coming here and speaking to us today, speaking frankly and clearly and uh, no doubt the debate is going to continue. You've already signified your appreciation for his attendance, but I'd like personally and on behalf of LSE to say we're very grateful to have him here. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.